Hi, welcome to Ruin My Life, a podcast about forcing your friends to like the things you like. I'm Jason Edwards. I'm Kelsey Goldman. And this episode is very special. Special episode. More a special, very special episode. More special than even the other, the other special episodes. They're all special. But this one's especially special. <laughs> this one is a throwback to our very first episode. Now I know what you're thinking. Oh boy, a trip down memory lane back to, back to, wait, what's the name of that show? Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders. Oh man, so so gone from my mind is it that I, I you know that that would be a good follow up, uh, a good special anniversary episode too, yeah. is doing the second season of Peaky Blinders. Yeah. But no, this is actually a a redux. We are going back in time to even before then, and redoing the first episode we ever tried to record. <laughs> I never saw the light of day because it was unlistenable in so many ways. <laughs> so many ways. We were right by the, the noisy um, refrigerator. Yeah. And also, we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. Also, it was like late at night. It was night. like 1 a.m. It was like <laughs> mid-August. Because this is our, I should, sorry, I've buried yeah. the lead multiple times now. This is our third anniversary episode. Woo! Which, because broadly speaking, we began this journey of ours three years ago. August of 2016. Yeah, I guess. It came out in September. It came out in September. We recorded like, you know, like four episodes. Yeah. Maybe five before we ever actually released any. Yeah, I forgot uh, about that. Man, to have a backlog like that now, oh, huh? Oh, man, we got to get on that. That would feel great. Right? That would feel so good. But in this episode, we are actually not only throwing back to 2016, but we are actually casting our minds back to an even more distant time. The far off realm of mid-2000s America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For the piece of art we are discussing today, yes, art, I said it, is maybe the most comprehensive attempt uh, to to, to record, to date, to capture the spirit of what it meant to be alive and in America in 2005, give or take. (laughs) That's right, it's Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. Ooh, Southland Tales. The misbegotten, um, barely released, not well-remembered a sophomore feature from the director of Donnie Darko, who then went on to direct The Box in, I think, 2009. And since then, basically MIA, <laughs> not doing a lot. He, he's done some producing. He's still behind the scenes. He's in, he's in Hollywood. He's doing stuff. Uh, maybe someday he'll get to direct another movie. I would like that. I'm quite a big fan of this movie and of The Box, honestly, and, of course, of Donnie Darko. Uh, Kelsey, you've never seen Donnie Darko, is that I've right? I've never seen Donnie Darko. That's odd to me. Yeah, it seems like I would be, like, a girl who really liked Donnie Darko in high school. Yeah, I feel like there's just a very certain, like, everyone in that era of, like, every sort of, like, somewhat nerdy or weird high school kid in that era saw Donnie Darko at some point. I think I really tried to repress my, like, weirdness in high school, and I didn't really embrace it until college. And, uh... Oh, but that point, like, you know, liking Donnie Darko was passe. Yeah. It was a thing that was very, (laughs) like, kind of cool to like in high school. Yeah. Or at least cool by, you know my definitions are sort of the very well, lowered been, standards I worked with in high school. We've established that you were the second coolest of our friend group in high school. By, by some by some rubrics, <laughs> yes. Because I because I was the, uh, I got the closest to drinking during <laughs> high school. And I drank right after senior year. <laughs> as opposed to many of us who waited until college. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but now, yeah, so, so in 2001, this movie Dying Darko comes out. You know the basic premise of it? Kind of, yeah. It's not really important. Jake yeah. Hall at least sort of didn't launch his career, but sort of put him in a, mm-hmm. a higher stratosphere of indie stardom. Cult hit. Not not big in theaters, but, you know, again, gained a second life on DVD because it was in the era when that sort of thing hap- was happening more often. There's a rabbit. 
There's a rabbit. There's a big. It's kind of like it's kind of like you know spooky Harvey. Harvey yeah. It's like a spooky Harvey. <laughs> spooky Sci- Harvey. Sci-fi Harvey. <laughs> and then you know that happened, and then he didn't really. We didn't hear from him for several years. Richard, Richard Kelly. Kelly. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. We did hear from. And Frank the Rabbit, of course, we all hear from every night in our dreams. Obviously. And mm-hmm. what, what sort of came out was this movie, Southland Tales, which is a very different movie from, from Donnie Darko in a lot of ways. It's a so- very different movie from any movie ever. True. Let's, let's put it this way. It's, a, it's very different from a movie. Very few movies are like this. <laughs> Maybe the nearest comparison I can come to is a movie I actually just saw this weekend, uh, Nashville by Robert Altman. Mm. And that's, that's a... That's a it's a big bit of a reach. Nashville is certainly more coherent than than uh, than Southland Tales, but they are both movies that try to capture a very particular time in America, and do so with a sprawling cast of characters who engage in plot lines that sort of stop and start seemingly at random and don't really totally resolve in sort of a traditional way and overlap and you know intersect in sort of curious ways and but all sort of build together to make this statement about America. Uh, for Altman, it was the 70s in America. And again, you know, Roger Altman, I don't think Richard Kelly would mind me saying this. Uh, you know, a more accomplished, more skilled filmmaker than Richard Kelly. But he's <laughs> also perhaps one of the most acclaimed directors of all time. What else Altman. did he direct? The Long Goodbye. He did The Prairie Home Companion was his last film. He did the Popeye movie. He did Shortcuts. Uh, Nashville's maybe his, probably his best known piece of work. Okay. Aside from, I guess, Popeye, if that was your thing. <laughs> I feel like I've heard of The Longer Bye. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about Roger Altman. No, we're here to talk about Richard Kelly's Robert Altman. Southland Tales. We're here to talk about Southland Tales. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know where to really begin with this movie. This movie, I think to to preface, you should start with the fact that this movie is not just a movie, story-wise. No, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. It, is a, it was a transmedia experience, not mm-hmm. unlike the thing the Wachowskis tried to do with the Matrix sequels where they took these other um they tried to you know put split the story up sort of fragmented among different forms different uh, mediums even mm-hmm. because there was the Animatrix and there were the actual movies themselves then there was Enter the Matrix a god-awful video game <laughs> <laughs> which I played all the way through twice of course you did and they tried to and they sort of like they they were there were scenes and like story beats and things in those all three of those that all sort of overlapped and build one cohesive narrative. Mm-hmm. And um, which is not to say that if those things had all been in the movie, the movies would have been better than they are. I have complicated feelings about the Matrix uh, move sequels, which we've we discussed. You on. can listen to Jason's complicated Folks, feelings the, about the Matrix sequels. The catalog runs deep, three years deep. <laughs> three years deep. There's two episodes about the Matrix. Yeah, but the mm-hmm. but Southland Tales may be a more ambitious attempt at a transmedia experiment, but ultimately less successful as well. Originally, his idea was, Kelly's idea was he was going to have a movie that was, or a story in nine parts. And there was going to be a graphic novel that was the, the first six parts, or basically the first six parts were going to be, I think, both a graphic novel and an online experience. And then the last three parts were going to be this movie, which, I mean, you can sort of, right off the bat, there's some flaws in that idea, which is that you're going to have people who, you know, don't, give a shit about comic books or weird online ARG content <laughs> who are going to theoretically need to see this movie in order for it to be profitable or even seen and understood by anybody. In the end, he only got to make three graphic novels. So that's half the story. And then the movie is the second half. And I think there was some content online. It's not really accessible now, but 
you know, we're, we're going to try to stick with just the movie in this discussion because I had you read the comics the first time. Yeah. Because before I saw the first time and I was like, when I found that this movie was coming out, I went, I went fucking nuts. I was obsessed with this movie's existence for years. I didn't get to see it until like 2009, but I went all in on it and I loved it. Still love it. Uh, maybe, you know, not as passionately as I did once before. But we're going to try to focus on just the movie itself because think, the movie, I think, is uh, having... Like, and sort of the flaws in that plan that make it hard to understand the movie. Yes. And I will say this, uh, <laughs> having read the comics myself multiple times, they, they give some more context to the story of the movie. They don't really make what's happening more coherent. It's true. They give you a little bit more background information so that you're like uh, slightly less lost at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, you understand what happens to specifically uh, the Rock's character. Yes, a lot better from reading the the graphic novels. <laughs> I would say you understand more of what's happened to him. Yeah, I don't ever really like I said, it doesn't clarify anything. Yeah, like you understand like where he's starting the movie basically, instead of it just sort of being glossed over. But the thing is, where he's starting the movie is at the like is it at the midpoint of a long journey that's built on hallucinations and lies and amnesia and like confusing sci-fi stuff so it's not like you really like reading it's a more complete experience but i don't think it's necessarily well it's more of an experience i don't know if it's more complete i think let's try to give us a short plot summary (laughs) of the movie okay we gotta run through some characters first do we well let's run through some actors there's so many Let's run through some. Okay. So we've already mentioned Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock. Yeah. I believe when this came out, he was still credited as Dwayne The Rock Johnson, perhaps. Uh, no, actually, he, on the poster, he's just Dwayne Johnson, which is, I think, interesting. That is interesting. So Dwayne Johnson is sort of the, he's maybe, like I said, it's an ensemble cast, mm-hmm. but he is maybe the central character. Mm. Well, but he's one of two one central of characters. One of two central characters. He plays Boxer Santeros, an action movie star, not unlike The Rock himself at this point. Yeah. I guess at this point as well in present day too. Yeah. Who has political ties. Uh, co-starring as like the secondary lead, you probably would say, is Sean William Scott yeah. in a dramatic role. Yeah. As a, as a, as well, as supposed identical twins, Roland Taverner and Ronald Taverner. Supposed. Yeah. You got Sarah Michelle Gellar as Krista Now, who is a adult film star. Mandy Moore is Boxer Santaros' wife, though she's not as much of a major character. I'd say the other real, the real other figure you really need to know is Justin Timberlake is Private Pilot Abilene, an Iraq War veteran who narrates the film. This is this is because so, because one of the things that's most interesting to me about this cast is like the relative where they are in their acting careers, like because like I would say this is fairly early in the Rock's like. Yeah, this is like three years after the Scorpion King. This is early yeah. on. Like, it was shot in two thousand five, so it's two years after. But this the Scorpion is like King. the height of like Sarah Michelle Gellar, right? And then this is like pre Ringer, yeah. Sarah Michelle Gellar, the post Buffy, post Buffy pre Ringer. And then like this is after Justin Timberlake did like Alpha Dog and Black Snake Moan. I don't know. This is. I think this is before Black Snake Moan. Actually, I think I feel like Black Snake Moan was two thousand six. Southland Tales is 2007. Apparently, this came out in 2007. Yeah, well, wide release 2007. Okay, from but Premier it was Ka- made before that. Premiere Khan 2006 was probably made in 2005. Okay, that makes sense. Did you so go- around the same time? Okay, I well, guess. when was Black Snake Moan? 
2006. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I was right mm. in some ways. In some ways, yes. <laughs> it's almost as if my identity was split between two, into two halves. Oh, God. Okay, so we, that's, yeah, there's no reason. There's so many there's, fucking there's characters There's so in many this. freaking people in this. We, 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 yeah, you're right. We are better like, off. I just want to establish that The Rock, Sean William Scott, Justin Timberlake. And Sarah and Michelle Gellar. Those, those are like the four people you need to be able to yeah. keep track of. Yeah. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> Justin Timberlake kind of isn't really there for the first You don't really need to keep track of him either. Oh, he'll let you know he's there. Yeah. He'll let you know. He's, he's sort of just watching he, He's not things. integral to the plot. <laughs> But he also is. It's kind of okay. So let's let's start. Let's just kind of break down the general, the world of the movie is maybe the more important thing to get into here. Yes. So this is as as I've sort of said. It's a sort of a manifestation of, of uh, you know the very specific mid two thousands political anxieties. So it is takes place in a world where there is a nuclear attack on Texas, I believe, right? Yeah. On, sorry, on Abilene, Texas, yeah. El Paso, and Abilene. Uh, there was a nuclear attack on July 4th, 2005. And this sort of didn't really div- create a divergent reality from our own. It sort of just amplified the things that were already happening. It's kind of as if they were, there was a second 9-11. And it didn't sort of change the path of things as much as it sort of made them happen twice as much. And so in that world, there's been, you know, there's a lot of government overreach. The The Patriot Act has been, ex- has been expanded into a very, like, invasive program called U.S. Ident, which... Patrol like is has a very sort of strict hold on people's identity. It's very sort of a you know the police state has grown and and and, and, you know, and sort of tightened its grip on America. There are borders in between states that so you have to have a proper identification to cross. The way sort of you know you need a passport or a visa to cross over borders in the countries, which doesn't really factor into the plot at all. Really, yeah. not even in the comic book. I always assumed that was just really put in place to keep the plot in. California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is the internet has been sort of taken over by the government, though again, this does not really factor into much. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's the, the World War Three has broken out. Oh, the movie is very very vague as to what this actually means. Yeah. It then seems there's like there's an oil crisis. Yeah, and there's an energy crisis, which yeah. there of course which is in real life. There is, yeah. And yeah, and these uh, these these. Okay, so uh, where to where to even begin? By the way, the World War. This III- is why we couldn't edit this before because it's so hard to explain this fucking movie. World War Three, by the way, just for the record, is is not really a a classical like World War in the same way you think of like World War One or World War Two. It appears to basically be an expanded version of uh, the the War on Terror. But there is a draft in state. Yes, there's a draft yeah. in state, but it's it's basically like America is over in the Middle East, sort of fighting a war on terror. But we assume just sort of it's a jacked up, super hype war on terror because of the second massive terrorist attack. Yeah. And, ba- and also within this world, there's this group of, called the neo-Marxists, which are supposedly an, a thing that has emerged in the in the wake of this, you know, enhanced police state and like you know, like expansion of government authority. Is that sort of it's sort of ex- you know, grown within the uh, this political environment who are who want to destroy U.S. ident, and their goals are to do that. I guess the best way to break it down is there's there's kind of three groups. There's the government. And like you know, the the political powers that be, which is sort of represented by Mandy Moore's family, the Frosts, who are the mm-hmm. the the vice presidential candidate, yeah. And sort of the and her her mom is really the head of the NSA, yeah. And also her dad is running for vice president. I don't know if that would could could you do that? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I feel so. like you probably couldn't do that, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you got you got you let go of things like logic and like real world logic for this movie. There's those people, and they're trying to. You know, establish like cement their power, like maintain their hold on America that they currently have. 
and there's the there's the neo-Marxists who want to bring the whole thing down. Their goal, as is stated multiple times, and then uh, at the end, very confusingly, by another main character, is to destroy capitalism and dethrone God, which, sign me up. We're a leftist <laughs> podcast now, baby. Destroy capitalism, dethrone God. That's us. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad goal. No. If, you're, that's, if that is your goal, it's like, that's pretty decent, mm-hmm. you know. And then there's this, there's these this bizarre, I guess, German sort of crypto, just a hyper-European family called the the Westphalens, led by Baron von Westphalen, played by Wallace Shawn, in a just, you know, just a classic Wallace Shawn turn. Very classic Wallace Shawn He's just up there doing his thing. And they are the purveyors of this new form of renewable energy. They have harnessed a, well, they've sort of created a perpetual motion device, but what that does is they're harnessing the perpetual motion of the sea. And that has created a new... A new, uh, like, renewable form of energy. Fluid karma. But they're also, yeah, fluid karma is, like, this the, the name for this. Well, it's a name for a lot of things, really. Yeah. It's all tied together with a lot of things about, like, illegal, like, psychoactive, like, mind-altering experiments that have been done in the military. Also at the behest of the Westphalens. Yeah, what can you say? There's, I, there's a lot going on in this there's movie. A, there's a lot going on. Um... And and what what it all really comes down to is is this and this is my main. So I went into this movie this time because I uh, well, the first few times I watched it and I've watched it many times over the years. My experience has just been oh it's a movie about the end of the world. It's really fucking weird. It's got a lot of nutty stuff in it. The Rock does that little thing with his hands where he taps his fingers together in a very nervous like tick, which I think is just hilarious to have The Rock do at this point in his career. But this time I went in and I thought okay I'm gonna try to watch this and and kind of like parse it for what it says about what it meant to be a, a, a person with, generally speaking, like, you know, liberal-leaning sentiments in the mid-2000s, which is what I was. I mean, I was, I was, a, I was a teenager. Richard Kelly was an adult. But I thought, okay, I'm going to try to parse what this says about American anxieties in the second Bush uh, presidential administration. And what I found was that uh, even two minutes in, it is completely impossible to parse what this movie is trying to say. <laughs> Or not, not impossible, but there's so much, because the movie, so basically when it first ran at, at Cannes, it was uh, even more confusing than it currently is, and but they recut it with a new narration and a new opening that kind of laid out the world of the movie in a more clear way and brought in elements from the graphic novels to clarify that point. But what that means is you get the entire world building thrown at you in the space of about five minutes, and it's all... It's so. It is also clearly a a, a, a manifestation of those like mid two thousands anxieties, but also it, you can't tell which way it's coming from, because because like the these 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 evil Germans who have invented renewable energy and they're like they're they've partnered up with the like you know the clearly like uh, the the well, George like, Bush analog and well because he. Well, Sean's character is supposed to be, like, related to Jenny von Westphalen, who was married to Karl Marx. Like, it's a whole thing. Yes. And because, because he, it's not, I'm not going to, we shouldn't try to avoid spoilers, but yeah. Wallace Shawn is, like, is like a secret neo-Marxist yeah. who's trying to bring down the system from within, but is also part of the system. And because it's all this stuff about the military and, like, how the, you know, they've been doing experiments on, on the troops and the soldiers. And two of the main characters are, like, have, like, you know, intense, like, psychological and physical scars from their time overseas. And there's like, and they are, there's this whole thing about celebrities and like how they're like in, entangled in politics and the military. And it's all so fucking confusing. So my two, my two big takes in this movie, my theses 
are as follows. Your two theses. My two theses. My first thesis is this movie is what it is about. Is about is about how in the mid two thousands, uh, we were at a you know America was a divided nation, and we were suffering from these conflicts that were happening by this as a result of this, this hopelessly intertangled group of you know people, these different groups of people who were all coming into conflict, and it was sort of tearing us as apart as a nation. And the only way to to get past this and resolve these conflicts is to forgive ourselves for the Iraq War. Okay. Um, again, I don't know if that is a good point of view, but I think it is definitely what the movie argues. Okay. What's your second thesis? I don't remember. <laughs> I have forgotten it uh, in the middle of saying that first one. So let's talk about that first let's one. Let's talk about that first one, yeah. Maybe <laughs> the second one will come back to me. You can edit this part out. <laughs> I guess so. Um, Kelsey, I, I have not let you speak very much so far. I... Does, does that does any of that sort of click with what you saw? So, yes. <laughs> no, I don't know. Jason, I'm going to be real honest with you. Okay, let's hear it. This movie makes no sense. Or does it? <laughs> because here's my second thesis. Because, oh, you remember now? I remember now. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to lay it out because I think it might help frame the discussion a little bit. Okay. My thesis is this movie, and this didn't really click for me until I saw Nashville, yeah. which is, again, kind of similar to this in a certain way, mm-hmm. which is that this movie, you got to understand, you watch it now, and I watch it now, and I've been you know, watching this movie for 10 years now. You watch it now, and it makes no sense. It is like, it's so impossible to tell what the point of view is or what it's all supposed to mean. Like, what even the references are meant to, like, allude to in some cases. But I got to tell you, when I saw this movie for the first time in 2007, or maybe 2008, around then, uh, it was it was, it was, was blindingly obvious. It was, like, it, the movie was so over the top and obvious and, like, clear about what its intentions were that it was almost, like, ridiculous how, like, cartoonishly obvious it was. But now, I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> So it somehow is such a specific cultural object that even if you were alive when it came out and you understand exactly what it was doing then, the further away we get from it as a society, it just it just recedes in the distance and you can't make sense of it. It becomes more and more obscure as time goes on. Which doesn't make sense because when you when you look back on a thing that's like of a of a moment, yeah. you should be able to identify like what that thing is trying to say about that moment, at least trying to. But this it just gets more and more confusing mm-hmm. because the world we're in now is so like different from this world that is being like satirized and explored in this movie. Like the Patriot Act. If you were like a left-leaning teen or like a person at all in the mm-hmm. mid-2000s, you, you, you talked about the Patriot Act all the time. It was like the thing you were most like freaked out about. Mm-hmm. But now I haven't thought about it in probably a year until we saw this movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was a, that was a thing. The Patriot Act. <laughs> yeah, I, it was like the it was the the biggest thing in the world for us. Because that's the one that let them like spy on all of us, basically, yeah. right? And that was the scariest thing in the world in like two thousand five. Yeah. It was like, oh man, the government's yeah. gonna spy on us. That's this movie, you know, U.S. Iden is a manifestation of that of that fear. Yeah. But now it's like, what were we? What, well, that's what we were worried and I about. Think, like, I think that's the thing, right? There's all these things that are like manifestations to these very specific or reactions to these very specific things that were happening in the early aughts but now but one now they don't all make sense together <laughs> so like yes okay you can see patriot act USI and just like the fear from the patriot act but there's like the other stuff too that doesn't quite like track with that like i don't know like the the like the experimentations on on the soldiers like what is that 
fear come from and why does it uh, it just like it they try to shove a bunch of things together that like probably made sense at the time but now i don't know where they're coming from yeah the entire idea that these these these, these shady like, europeans are are like not only like have developed a renewable form of energy but are also like testing a an offshoot of this thing on soldiers that allows them to see through the, the fourth dimension and like manipulate time and space <laughs> but also that they're like they've like allied with the far right party that's like controlling america but they're doing that all to overthrow capitalism in some way it's completely it's nonsensical it doesn't make any sense but yeah you, you have to if you try to think about it as as so neo-marxism in this movie is is portrayed as like a not not like a necessarily a thing that harkens back to the actual ideas of marx and the you know historical you know work of communism yeah but sort of like an expansion and like a you know a, a growth out of the liberal movement of the mid-2000s and so that that you know when you look at it that way the idea of these these two forces are both like commingled with each other and like are at, are at odds but sort of like serve the same you know, not purpose or function but like all are part of the same world and like hopelessly like or like i said you know tied together in a way they're bound together they're the only way to get free ourselves from them is to destroy them that makes sense sort of sort of kind of if you squint if you squint kelsey what were your what was let's let's, let's take a break in the mid-2000s where were you at politically i was i was very apolitical as a teenager i did not really care about politics i couldn't vote so yeah (laughs) um my parents were both republicans i think there was very much of the fiscally conservative, socially liberal mindset. But, like, we didn't talk about politics. We didn't do that. You know, like, we just, like, it just was conversations we, like, like, I knew that the Iraq war was probably bad, but I couldn't explain to you why. And, like, I didn't have enough understanding of, like, the systems in our country politically, economically, to tell you, like, how why it was so fucked up or to even know that it was fucked up because i'm from a very privileged place like i i'm i grew up very privileged and i didn't have to like worry about that shit which sucks like i mean like it's good for me but it sucks that i like it took me a long time to like learn that yeah i mean i come from basically the same place yeah. but yet i was i i, I kind of i did care i'm not saying i was like more empathetic than you or anything i'm just saying i was like i was well, it the, sounds the, like that's what you're saying no no well here's what's, here's what's interesting to me is that you were you were aware the Iraq war was bad. Yeah. Which, by the way, not everyone, every teen was. A lot of teens were, like, <laughs> on board with it for a while. I guess a lot of people still are, amazingly. <laughs> but the, the idea, because I think for me, that's maybe was, that was a turning point for me and probably a lot of other, like, young left-leaning people, was that you know, the Iraq war is happening. The government's, like, put it into place, and they've, they've visibly lied to us. Mm-hmm. And, like, we all know it. And, like, you know, again, this sort of thing, like, I was a teenager. I was, like, 13 years old when the Iraq war was happening and I knew it was still I knew it was wrong yeah and so the idea that you could like see that and go well, that that's funny that's sort of is a it's a bad thing right well what what does that mean it's I feel that was sort of a turning point for a lot of people to think well what else could be wrong yeah like what else about the you know the general American narrative that I've been fed up to this point could be questioned yeah I think I just didn't I don't, I don't like politics now, like, when I am aware of all this thing. So, like, me, like, being like, well, that is a bad thing, but in a, in a very terrible, like, privileged way, but it doesn't affect me, so 
I don't need to worry about it. And that's like shitty. Like I, mean, I know just, that's just, shitty. Just to be clear, my my political engagement then is like not sadly not that far from what my actual like actions are now, which is mostly just to be mad online. <laughs> <laughs> but I I think I don't know. It's it's kind of an odd thing. I have some and I have some maybe some theories about why that might be that might be more suited for therapy than for a podcast. <laughs> but I think the, I think I think the Iraq War is an important thing to discuss when discussing this movie, Southland mm-hmm. Tales, which we are here to discuss. Because it's so, it so informs what's happening in the movie, but to an extent that it, 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 the fact that there's not more time to vote to that segment of the world of the movie, it kind of hurts the movie a lot. Yeah. Because I found I just found this out today, by the way. This movie was originally written before September 11th. That's crazy. He wrote this as a just a. It was kind of a similar style thing, I think, but it was more focused on Hollywood and like a satire of show business, with like with I assume some sort of sci-fi twist to it that would have made so much more sense well i think that's part of the reason why the, the script feels so like the entire there's so much there's all these threads about celebrity yeah. and how it exists in this world and it's intertangled and I, like, intertangled with politics which again now does not seem like a thing worth even commenting on well yeah I, but like, back then i guess was a a slightly bigger deal and b this those are remnants from the script when it was just about that yeah. i feel like for me that that is the part that doesn't make sense like the the whole boxer santoro storyline makes zero sense in the the overall the overarching concept of the thing like the whole bars and tours chris and now like that that bit it it doesn't fit with the rest of the narrative at all but it's like a big part of the narrative it is and like we've talked about how i have like recall issues so like it's really hard for me to think back and figure out like what i was feeling politically in 2005 <laughs> but i don't know like i just can't imagine this movie ever making that much sense so i think i think maybe a a key thing about this movie is the thing that's revealed towards the end which is that which is that a big part of this movie is that both boxer santeros aka the rock and roland taverner aka sean william scott aka ronald taverner they both those two characters went through an event in the desert related to this like mysterious energy source form thing where they're split into two and they both have like, you know, Boxer Santeros is, uh, you know, s- split the twin self, died or was killed. Half, or half of him is dead. Half of him is dead. <laughs> and like, but meanwhile, on the other half, on the other side of the plot, uh, Roland, he and his, you know, co- his like split up, like one soul and two bodies, partner, twin, fake twin. Thing. Uh, still alive. Yeah. And the movie kind of resolves into, so basically... All the all the almost all the main characters end up on this 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 mega zeppelin. Uh, and they're all together. And this is honestly, we were watching this movie, and I was like, "This thing doesn't make any sense. There's not anything to be taken from it. I've wasted my life. Maybe this isn't the greatest movie of all time. I know, I know, dark stuff. But I was there, dear listener. But there's a moment when when Boxer first like in, like enters the the party that's happening on the zeppelin. And there's that long scene where they're walking. He's, there's, there's that long scene where Boxer Santeros is walking around the party on the Mega Zeppelin. It's all one shot. It's all one shot. It's a very nicely composed shot. It's kind of slow motion. There's some uh, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club music playing underneath it. <laughs> In that moment, I'm not sure what it was, but for some reason, I really started to lock into what the movie was, I think, trying to do. Okay. And I got this very intense feeling of like, oh, I get it. In a sort of very, like an unspoken way. 
but it was as if everything was um what he he he's like he's, he's like Richard Kelly is saying that this sort of moment this kind of thing is where it's all headed and obviously it's not really where it all ended up in the real world mm-hmm. but in 2005 when he was making this movie it may have kind of seemed like yes it's all going to everyone's all like you know clumped together and they all sort of hate each other but they're all you know so closely tied together they can't really like one can't die without the other one dying as well and nothing can like you know everything is sort of locked in this in this gridlock and it's all going to ascend above the common common folk as we below on the streets of Los Angeles, I guess, break out into riots, and the society starts to like sort of you know crumble at the edges. <clears throat> that happens, and the center of it all is Boxer Santoros, a movie star, a guy who, by no, you know, by, by all means should not be here, but he is here, and he sort of is where the whole thing is pivoting around, and it's all sort of going around forever and ever in this endless dance. Meanwhile. These are the two characters, Roland and Ronald, who are in fact these same souls split into two bodies, who are both scarred by what happened in in, in, in Iraq, in Fallujah. Um, they they finally come together on the streets of uh, Los Angeles during this riot. In an ice cream truck. And they can they they hold hands, or they they shake hands. Yeah. But they come together, and that kind of hard, kind of kind of sound goofy, but it lifts the ice cream truck into the <laughs> air, and because of that, Martin Kefauver, a suicidal uh, dentist's son, who you know is fulfills the role of the uh, you know the, the white wannabe gangster you know rich boy but who has been drafted into the war and is uh, you know given up on life because of the coming together of the two Rolands and, the, and Ronald or whatever you want to call them uh, he is lifted up and can use a heat-seeking missile because uh, the ice cream truck was converted into a uh, gun sales truck yes, out of which christopher lambert the fucking highlander <laughs> this movie is stacked with with a kid with the with actors was selling guns he's gone now he's out of the scene yeah. but he uses that martin kefauver uses that that bazooka to blow up the entire zeppelin and wipe out the entire ruling class of america and then he sort of you know lets go of his own life and falls to the ground and dies and the and the, the final images of the film are are Roland uh, is sort of, it's hard to really explain because it does also, it's very deeply symbolic, but also it's kind of unclear what the symbolism means. But it is clear that these, the coming together of these two figures who were torn apart by the war in Iraq is meaningful. And that meaning has sort of torn down the existing order and maybe will allow for things to, you know, stop being quite so awful now that these, these people aren't in charge anymore. I don't know what to tell you. That's what happens. That's what happens. Um, again, this that sort of meaning might not be clear to someone who's not operating on, you know, my level politically, you know, aesthetically, socially. Aesthetically? I feel like we are on the same aesthetic level here. <laughs> <laughs> of the movie, I mean. Um, not my aesthetic. Uh, my understanding of aesthetics. Sure. Okay. Kelsey, I'm the only person in the world who can understand... <laughs> the proper level on which to enjoy each Star Wars movie. <laughs> You're telling me that doesn't qualify. I've never met anyone else who does. I'm the only one who knows how to enjoy them all properly. Okay. I'm the only person I've ever met who does that. Okay. I don't mean to brag, but yeah, that's where we are. I thought you were going to say that you're the only person in the world who understands what this movie means. No, I don't think I understand what it means. <laughs> I think I have an interpretation based on my desire to understand what it means. But I think my read is probably, you know, 
I think what I landed on is maybe the best we're going to get. That seems fair. Yeah. I have thoughts. Please. So I think the first time you showed me this movie, I was like sort of like a mix of confused and also this is amazing. Um, and mostly for like moments in this film, do I think it's amazing? Those moments don't go together at all. <laughs> um, like it's almost like someone wrote a extended sketch comedy of what like the what a like dystopian post Iraq war world would look like that which is not helped which is not helped by the presence of many comedic actors Gary O'Terry is the year Amy Poehler is Amy Poehler's here. here this movie came out fucking like what a year and a half before Parks and Rec started yeah uh, Wood Harris from The Wire not a comedic actor no. primarily but he was in he's here John Larroquette's here John Larroquette um kevin smith is hanging around kevin smith <laughs> good lord maybe his greatest performance as simon theory i mean well sean like sean zelda rubenstein like there's there's a lot going on miranda richardson is uh the the Bobby frost wife yeah um there's just a lot going on and there is uh, inarguably there is a lot going and on it's so hard to parse but there are moments of just like this is amazing but i it doesn't make any sense with whatever preceded it <laughs> i gotta say i think understanding southland tales as like kind of like a collection of sketches <laughs> with no real punchline or point to most of them is maybe the best way to look at it <laughs> also you i'm would... out here with the hot takes <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a thing that, that carries over from donnie darko is that richard kelly is very good at setting um you know action to music he excels at it. All like all the, like the the greatest scenes in this movie are all set to are all scored very well. I mean, the possibly the greatest piece of cinema to ever exist is in this movie. Yes, this is I think the one thing that we probably is probably has not changed from the original recording of this episode three years ago to now, <laughs> is we are both in agreement the best thing in this whole movie and perhaps movies ever is the sequence where Justin Timberlake as a as a ex actor ex soldier current. A drug, drug dealer <laughs> who lives on a boardwalk in like an arcade in an arcade <laughs> when he enters a pseudo dream state yeah and and dances around lip syncing to the killers all these things that i've done all the bevy of like ironically glamorous chorus girls dance around him oh it it's is, so great he's it's, it's really it's very good and it's it re- so good if you it, watch with me for one thing watch it for that <laughs> and i don't know if it would have the impact separate from the rest of the movie yeah but also i feel like everything the movie is trying to say is in that sequence yeah uh, i can't say what that is <laughs> i'll say it somehow somehow the fact that he is an ex-soldier and he's singing the line i've got soul but i'm not a soldier yeah somehow is so on the nose yeah it goes right back around to being cool and confusing and kind yeah. of obscure so there's that, which is the best thing ever. That's amazing. Um, but there's the other moments that are just like so, like, honestly, all of the scenes with like Sherry Terry and uh, Amy Poehler and Wood Harris, like that, and John Lovitz, <laughs> like that whole random plot line to get Roland to be a patsy, basically. Um, but they also want Boxer to be a patsy. Yeah. To, to set up those people. Oh, John Lovitz is there. Did we mention John, John Lovitz? John Lovitz is there. John Lovitz is there as, as, is as there. racist cop Bart Bookman. <laughs> racist cop Bart Bookman. Um, Will Sasso is there. There's so many people in this movie. 
that that is the problem. You have this sort of like somewhat broad political or a broad like showbiz satire up against mm-hmm. this kind of intriguing. Janine Garofalo story. was cut from this movie. Yeah, she appears in one shot at the very end <laughs> when when JT and um when JT and the rest of the people who live in his weird arcade carnival <laughs> sideshow are dancing around like the fucking yeah. Ewoks the end of Return of the Jedi. Yeah. But like all that stuff with uh, Shira Terry and, and Amy Poehler and Wood Harris and that whole storyline is great. Um, By the way, I have now convinced myself that, that is an intentional reference to Return of the Jedi. What? The end. So we have a, a lone figure who blows up the massive symbol of the oppressor. Yeah. And then there's there's fireworks going off. Yeah. And then we cut to like a bunch of minor characters dancing around and celebrating. Yeah. What is that? Come on. What does that sound like to you? <laughs> what, is that, what does that remind you of? Okay. Um, but also, like, all of the random, like, Kristen Now's talk show bits are, like, amazing and weird and brilliant. Like, there's so many good, like, bits that don't make any sense together. There are moments where, like, the sort of weird tone in the movie, like, there's points where it solidifies and something actually kind of, like, eerie and almost sublime in yeah. moments. Okay, even though you don't know quite what's happening. Like, the resolution of the entire, like, the setup where they're trying to... I, don't, I never really got what the point of this was, but the neo-Marxists want to get... Uh, uh, on film, a police shooting done by Roland pretending to be a racist cop, yeah. or Ronald, I guess at that point. But Boxer is there for some reason, and somehow that would bring down the Frost campaign. Boxer whatever. is married to Frost's daughter. <sighs> yeah, it's yeah. a whole uh, thing. But the, the resolution of that, where Bart Bookman shows up, actually kills the two sketch performers who are actually well, one of them is an actual sketch performer, Amy Amy, uh, <laughs> Amy Poehler. Poehler. <laughs> uh, and then what else is great though? And then, and then Roland <laughs> or Ronald and Boxer sort of part ways to the score of uh, the surf mix, the UK surf mix of Wave of Mutilation. Somehow feels very important. I can't say why. I mean, the whole scene where that like that scene where uh, Boxer sort of descending into becoming the character he wrote Jericho about in the Cocaine. screenplay is like weirdly brilliant and important but none of it makes sense and, there, and there's also times <laughs> when, the, when, the, when the, the weird kind of like over the top tone like sort of again like comes around and sort of like lines up just right to give you some really choice fantastic dialogue like at the end when boxer is told that he must have he might have murdered his own past self and he, so he drops the immortal line i didn't kill myself because i'm a pimp and pimps, pimps don't, don't commit, commit suicide. suicide that's literally the last line of the movie it is that's it, the last it, line of the movie. It's introduced about two hours in, and then it comes back in as the final line about ten minutes later. It is ridiculous. It's fucked up. I would be lying if I said that line hadn't got me through some tough times emotionally, <laughs> though, so I love it. Because you're a pimp. And pimps don't commit suicides. That's right. Uh, I mean, you know, if something about that is, uh, is questionable. Uh, there's, some, there's some elements in that statement that are not perhaps verifiable. Yeah. So basically my take on this movie is that I think it could have been a really good prestige TV show. <laughs> yeah, you kept saying during the movie, like, oh, who'd be in this now? <laughs> As if Southland Tales is like a thing that could exist successfully at any point in time. What would the, what would, Kelsey, what would the prestige TV show of this be like? How I don't be- know. I don't know, but I feel like that's the right format. We have not even gotten into all that. We're not going to. Don't worry. We have not even gotten into all the uh, rev- uh, references to the Book of Revelation. Oh my god! Which is a huge like linchpin that, that ties the whole movie together. But trust me, I've spent years thinking about this and trying to correlate the specific references to the overall structure of the movie and how that sort of functions. It doesn't make any sense. So it, it, it does not track in the slightest. <laughs> at least 
three different characters are identified reliably as the Antichrist <laughs> and by, by like, you know, in, in different ways. And none of them really do Antichrist things. It's a very... Part of the backstory is that they they, 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 they jacked Krista now up on Liquid Karma and then read her the entire book of Revelation and had her write the screenplay of the fake movie within the movie, yeah. which I think is probably about how the actual movie was written as well. <laughs> because there are a lot of references to the book of Revelation that sort of lend a... If you're as you know susceptible to that stuff as me, especially me at nineteen, um, you know that stuff really can can work on you. But objectively, it does not really track. My whole obsession with with who would be in this now is more about these people are all at such different places in their careers, and I don't understand how they're all in the same movie. <laughs> it's great. That that's more what I'm thinking about. When I'm like, who would like? What is the what is the equivalent now? <laughs> so. I think some of them, like Wallace Shawn has been the same place in his career for the last 30 years. Well, yeah. He could still be in it. Yeah. John Larroquette, honestly, could probably still be in it. Yeah. I love John Larroquette. Oh, he's great. Underrated actor. He's the only person I look at this and I go, you know what? He's wasted in this. Yeah. Everyone else, I'm like, you know what? This is the perfect use of Justin Timberlake. Yeah. <laughs> and of Sean William Scott. Yeah. And probably of The Rock, honestly. Honestly, very good use of The Rock. It's funny because The Rock is playing a, a sort of a parody of himself in a way. Yeah. Which he would never do in this way now. Yeah, I don't he would, think so. Because at this point, I think he was like just getting into being an actor, really. Yeah. So he was willing to take that sort of risk. But now he would never, he would never mess with his brand and this way. We he both were like, that. when we were watching this, wow, he looks like sort of normal. <laughs> yeah, because he's not. He was back then. He was like still like the biggest, toughest guy in the movie by a long shot. Yeah. But now he would, you know, twenty nineteen rock would like break Southland Tales rock in half with his hands. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I think the main thing with me being concerned about, like, who would be in this movie now is that I just don't understand how all these people ended up in this movie. Um, did but... Do we forget anybody? Oh, probably. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really matter. There's no way to communicate what this movie is like, even if you read it off the entire cast. Because yeah. it just is, is nothing... Because a lot of movies, you read off a cast, you're like, oh, boy, what is that? That's interesting. But honestly, the cast is by far the least confusing thing about this movie. This movie ran... When did this it ran at Con? It was 20 minutes longer. It didn't have the opening like explanation section. I don't think it had nearly as much narration. And Sony bought it. Sony bought this movie and like tried to like, show it to people. It's messed up. And it kind of derailed Richard Kelly's career. Fuck that. I mean, it's hard to imagine like the guy. Well, you know, the thing is nowadays. I mean, this, he did it to himself. <laughs> well, by making uh, three great movies that people didn't appreciate. Or, <laughs> The thing is, nowadays, if someone made a movie like uh, Donnie Darko, mm -hmm. like and that was like their first indie feature, uh, they would do that and would get some buzz, and then like three years later, they'd be making a Marvel movie. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah, that path didn't exist back then. Yeah. They still let promising indie directors make more movies. <laughs> they didn't just plug them into the machine and then like yeah. walk away. My take in in uh, Ruin My Life Canon is that this movie is m more confusing than Head. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well because head is a series of sketches that resolve themselves or not not always but but like the point is clear it makes more sense yeah and the structure honestly is a lot more um you know sensical as well yeah it's an it's an endless loop but you get it you get it and also quite frankly the insights about fame in head are more profound than the ones in oh yes South definitely Andales. i just can't i just can't go over the fact that in like 2005 and I don't think he was off base with this. I think Richard Kelly had his finger on the pulse to a certain extent. That the idea of like celebrities intertwined with politics was that big of a deal. 
Well, because 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger was only the governor like for like a couple years at this point, and that was the, I don't know if you remember a huge thing at the time. Yeah. The idea that even though it was not the first time it had happened, like obviously Ronald Reagan was the fucking president. I mean, look where we are now. It's true. You you would think that a movie like this would be prescient in some way. But, as, but again, I tell not. you, it is the opposite of pressure. It is the opposite of pressure. It made a lot of sense at one point, and it makes less and less sense with every passing day. Whew. But you know what? By God, I still love it. And I'm still going to keep saying it's my favorite movie of all time. Because for all the things that it does not accomplish, it captures so much of what I love about movies in one in one package that I can never... I, I, I don't know how to quit it, you know? <laughs> I think if I continue to look at it as a series of, like, vaguely connected sketches that just produce like interesting aesthetic moments <laughs> i can be happy with it that is the best way to look at it yeah although you should see donnie darko at some point probably yeah. it's like i don't know well, well maybe we can revisit that in a, another time perhaps because thank you for going on this three-year journey with me it's been a while yeah you're welcome yeah no insights or anything just you know thanks thanks thank you jason you're welcome, man. Keep going. Special thanks to Danny Abound of the Weeping Willards for use of their song Outside in the Rain from their self-titled album available now on Bandcamp. Special thanks to Carly Sussman who designed our logo. You can find her work at carly-rose.com. If you like our show, tell a friend. Tell a friend. Subscribe. Subscribe. Leave rate, us a review. Review. Really tell a friend, though. Yes. It's a good show. We're a leftist podcast now, so you have to address us as such. And take us, again, as I say every episode now, not on our, you know, insights, but on our political views, which I think we can all agree are good. They're good. They're good. And, you know, I guess there's only one way to say it is that, you know, as we always say at the end of every episode, go go to to therapy. therapy. They wish I would go ahead and fuck my life up. Can't let them get to me And even though I always fuck my life up Only I can mention me They wish I would go ahead and fuck my life up Can't let them get to me And even though I always fuck my life up Only I can mention me only I can mention me. Only I can mention me. Go, Go to, to therapy. therapy. And if you think that's about you, it is. It is. It's about everybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's specifically about Andrew Favalora. <laughs> <laughs> this is taking a highly specific and highly aggressive turn. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. <laughs> I'll probably cut that. Ba, 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 <laughs> na, na, na. <laughs>